Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. In March 2020, the UK went into a state of emergency lasting 764 days, and our laws were remade more radically than ever before, all in the interests of fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. Our guest on this episode, Adam Wagner, is one of the UK's leading human rights barristers. He's also the country's preeminent expert on COVID-19 laws and the author of a new book on that subject entitled Emergency State, How We Lost Our Freedoms in the Pandemic and Why It Matters. He joined How To Academy late last year for a live-streamed conversation with the Conservative peer and Times columnist Daniel Finkelstein. Adam, I want to start with the, you know, the very simple question. How did you come to write this in the first place? Well, over the course of the pandemic, I, I spent a huge amount of time trying to understand what was going on um, in terms of the law, which became a huge part of what was going on for everyone, because we all had to understand these uh, almost you know, unbelievable laws that were arising practically every day locking us into our houses, telling us whether we could worship, who we could hug, whether we could walk down the streets, you know, things that we wouldn't have imagined would have happened um, before. So I I spent really two years of my life dealing with with this and dealing with also um, working on a lot of different cases involving COVID-19 and and human rights. And at the end of it, I just felt like nobody else had – really paid as much attention as I had, I don't think, apart from the people who are writing the laws, to the, the twists and turns of what was going on. Probably because I had, you know, I was, I, I don't know, I, I've sometimes felt a bit like the, the tortoise and the, the tortoise and the hare story, that in the end, I was the only one still plodding along, reading these things at two in the morning when they arrived. So I, I, I felt like I had to tell that story. If I didn't tell that story, then no one else would be able to tell it was my worry. So that's why I, I decided to write the book. Give us an understanding of the title. You've got this arresting title, Emergency State, and you, you distinguish between that and a state of emergency. Yes, I, I wanted to come up with a framework for describing this transition that I think the state a state goes through to deal with a, an emergency, a real emergency, not like a sort of, you know, this, we deal with lots of crises. I think that's different. We do, you know, we seem to be in crises all the time, but emergencies, I think, are very rare. And they are, you know, existential emergencies, if I put it like that. Things like wars, huge economic shocks, terrorism, um, and of course, pandemics. And, and, and I've been thinking about this for, for a long time anyway, because it's just one of my sort of thought processes in the background of my life and, and my work has been, how to understand how human behavior and the state itself changes when we when we're threatened and and i think that that's what i call the emergency state is the state the, the way the state rearranges itself to deal with the crisis deal with the emergency and um you can i mean there's a, there's a big advantage to 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 this happening um the obvious advantage which is the state takes on a huge amount of power um, that it wouldn't ordinarily have, or that all the government or whoever's in control of things, to rearrange everything to deal with the existential threat, and that will be, you know, if it's a war, that will be transferring resources across from really important things to the current most and, and only really important thing, which is fighting the threat. 
But then at the same time, with that great power also will come risks. Um, and the risks are that the the kinds of things we expect from a democracy, that we that we need from a democracy to prevent corruption, to allow for people's views to be represented in this very complicated, huge structure, which is the state, a lot of those things um, will be diminished. Again, in, in a way, for a good reason. You have to act quickly. You have to act mercilessly. You sometimes have to take really hard decisions, which in normal times you wouldn't be able to. But with that comes really significant risks. Let me let me try and make sure that I've, before we sort of go into some of the details of it, that I've understood your broad position. You're not one of those people who think, you know, kind of uh, lockdown was a state conspiracy against uh, the individual, and uh, you know, you know, anything in the spectrum from it was a stupid mistake through to it was a conspiracy orchestrated by Bill Gates. You were fairly, if I've understood it correctly, you're sort of a fairly solid believer that it was there was a health imperative involved in this, and that you could see the case for. Take having some of these restrictions is that is that is that a fair summary of your position? Yeah, that that is fair, and and, and I think in uh, many times during the pandemic, it's going to sound strange, but I I sort of wished I was very against lockdowns or even or very pro lockdowns. Um, I, I really I really sort of wanted that certainty because it would have been a lot more straightforward, and I think you know it would have been simpler just to say look this is all just a terrible mistake um it's obviously wrong we're we're making an enormous error um you know and we're going to regret it for decades but it just seemed to me it, it seemed I, I couldn't find i couldn't find the evidence to justify either position really because lockdowns are really quite already a new thing there was there was I could only find examples of two national lockdowns in the past, in the 10 years up to COVID, one in Sierra Leone and one in Mexico. And they really only were for a few days each. It was only when China um, in Wuhan locked down the entire city um, in February 2020 that we that, that really was the first example of lockdowns. But what I could find was that over centuries, Whenever there's been a um, an outbreak of of really a, a, a new infectious disease or a or a, or a very dangerous one like the bubonic plague, we've always had well we've often had plague laws um, and the plague laws look in in fact remarkably similar to what we had during this pandemic. You've you've had gathering bans, school closures, theatre and um, pub closures, taking the homeless off the streets. Um, quarantine, which is an ancient, I mean, uh, you know, quarantine goes back to the Old Testament, the the idea of quarantine, of isolating people who are infectious with, with certain diseases. So if you break it down and you take and you and you look, don't say, you don't um, look at lockdown as something uh, in itself unique and different. And just think of it more of social distancing, the idea that if you've got some, if you've got a virus that spreads, by being close to each other, whether it's, you know, whatever the mechanism, then you're going to have to have some sort of restriction on social distancing. So that's the best I could find. But also the fact that in the scientific community, which is far better placed than I to really think about, to really understand and um, decide whether what the best non-pharmaceutical intervention, as they'd call it, was, um, I think that they were, they were, 
not universally, but in certainly a, a relative consensus that there had to be, while there was no vaccine, while there was no, there wasn't a really a real understanding, there was no palliatives, no way of actually treating COVID-19, let alone vaccinating against it. While that was all going on and it was spreading like wildfire and it was killing a lot of people, you had to have some sort of enforced social distancing. Whether we'll look back in decades to come and say that was all an enormous mistake, I don't know. Maybe I'll be proved wrong for being sanguine about it. Um, but I could, but I did agonize about it. I just couldn't see the case um, strongly against it. From that starting point, obviously there is a tension between the individual civil liberties to, you know, go about your daily business and uh, the protection of everyone else from you spreading a disease. How does a society go about sensibly making a decision about how to balance those things? And do you feel that we did go about it sensibly? Well, I think that th those decisions are, you know, that they are very, 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 very difficult, obviously. Um, that, you know, that I doubt there's any more difficult decisions that a, uh, that a politician will ever have to make than deciding well, effectively, in some way, deciding between who will live and who will die to an extent, because they're actually, when you break it down, what, what, is that, what are you actually deciding? You're deciding whether to prioritise um, people's everyday, getting on with their everyday lives with the, the potential complete breakdown of the National Health Service, you know, just from a, from a UK perspective. So you are really making life or death decisions. So I think that the starting point has to be in a democracy that it's the it's the elected representatives that make those decisions in the in the the structured way, whatever the structure allows within that state. I think that's quite obviously has to be a national decision or at least a close to national decision. And then the question is, well, how do you balance the need, as I've already you know touched on, the need for decisions to be taken really quickly and authoritatively? And not there not to be huge sort of dissonance all the time about decisions, um, especially as the because the, the pandemic doesn't stand still. It's very it's a very dynamic threat. It's it's going up, it's going down. We all saw the the, the charts and the and the statistics, and we all became obsessed with them. You know the R rate, what's the R rate today? What's the ratio between deaths and cases and, and all of those all of those difficult figures? So you have to be making those decisions pretty quickly. But then I, I think particularly as it went on, and my book covers over two years, you have to start incorporating some sort of democratic consensus or de democratic buy-in. Otherwise, you can legitimately be accused. And I, and I make the accusation of taking the emergency powers and not giving them back in time enough for, um, in, in the right amount of time. That, that's the sort of criticism I make. Well, let, let's, uh, one of the things your book does particularly well is uh, explain just how, you know, for instance, almost right at the beginning of the book, it, it goes into how the implementation of restrictions often preceded the passing of the relevant law. Take us through a little bit of that. Argue. People, people have to read it, buy it and read it to, 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 um, to capture this in full. But give us a flavour of it. Yes. Yeah, so, so there were, I counted 109 laws um, that made not just the lockdowns, but the lockdowns, gathering restrictions. The when, when I talk about lockdowns, I mean people not being allowed to leave the home 
without an ex- a reasonable excuse. There were three lockdown periods during um, during the two years I look at during during the pandemic. So lockdowns, gathering restrictions, self isolation rules, the face compulsory face coverings, travel restrictions, hotel quarantine, COVID passes. There was this whole sort of bevy of laws. There were 109 of them over two years, so roughly one every week over those two years. So each of those laws was, every single one of those laws was brought in by a statutory instrument under the Public Health Control of Disease Act 1984. And and that contains really vast emergency powers, which allowed that law to come into force as Matt Hancock signed the bottom of the piece of paper that um, the law was on, um, and wouldn't need to then go to Parliament for another four weeks. And, and quite often that's what happened, that the Matt, Matt Hancock would sign the law. Well, in fact, to go back to your question, in fact, sometimes it happened that the law appeared days after the restriction started. So on the 23rd of um, March 2020, when Boris Johnson stood up um, in front of the country and said, I must give you this very uh, one very simple instruction, you must stay at home. Um, the instruction wasn't a legal, there was no legal duty to um, to, to do that for another three days. Um, and that sometimes happened. That that happened in Leicester um, when the, the first local lockdown started. That the the government announced the lockdown on the Friday, said the lockdown has started, and the police said, right, we're we're going to have roadblocks um, on the way out of Leicester to stop people leaving and escaping the lockdown. Um, but the law itself um, didn't come out until the Monday. So God knows what was happening uh, over that weekend with the police because they had no powers to enforce anything. But. But generally speaking, what happened was that those laws would come into force the moment they were signed um, and then would be debated in part, and if they were debated at all. And I think uh, uh, only 48 were debated out of those 109. They, if they were debated at all, they would be debated weeks later, um, except for there were eight. Out of the 109, there were eight that were debated and voted on by Parliament the day before they came into force. Um, and usually Parliament would be given the regulation the night before um, they were going to debate it. So that's the kind of, that's the, that's the, what it, that's the piece. That's what it looks like. And that is, as you'll know, as, as a legislator, a pretty unusual way of going about passing very important complex laws. I mean, you there are lots of statutory instruments, which is how you kind of fill in the gaps in our laws. You can't pass, you can't put everything through the sort of gold standard of parliamentary scrutiny. And that's, I, I, I don't, pretend that, that that's anything but the case. But these were not ordinary laws. These were laws, these were the, in, in a way, the most restricted laws we've we've ever had. There's never, as far as I could tell, even in the Second World War, where, which is part, I do a comparison with the Second World War, um, there was there was nothing like the restrictions on um on social on, on, on being able to hug people or um or have sex with with your partner as 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 I you know, go into and happen for in, in Leicester for over a year. It was illegal to have sex with your partner if you didn't live with them or they weren't um, a support bubble. So so those kinds of laws you would hope would have some sort of parliamentary stamp of approval at the least. Um, but most of the vast majority of them didn't. So let's uh, let's look at the Dominic Cummings critique. I mean, I'm not saying he made he's personally made this specifically, but he, his broad critique of all these sorts of laws, and you and I have um, agree on have sort of agreed in repelling it, but nevertheless, it's 
no, it's it's a robust argument. Um, you're faffing around, putting all these laws on a spreadsheet and kind of saying they should have done this and they should have done that. Meanwhile, he would characterize himself as trying to save lives, um, trying to introduce laws that prevent um, people from uh, dangerous social mixing. And you are just looking for an opportunity to take them to court for doing that. Um, how do you? How would you respond to that? That, that is his criticism. Well, how would you respond to that? Well, absolutely, it's um, it, it's, it's it's a very easy criticism to make that, that I'm a sort of counsel of perfection. I'm looking for something which isn't possible, and and that's one that I grappled with as well. Um, but I think that as I, I th- the way I put it, the way I think I respond to it is this: that for the first few weeks of the pandemic and so i think probably the first lockdown the first lockdown was march to may 2020 those were almost indescribably terrifying um for everybody um and it's part of writing this book is going back in my mind to what that was like and i think it's really important to set the scene um and i, I hope you know when the covid inquiry writes its report and they consider their evidence they also set the scene um you know I'd, one of the, the the things I've done relatively recently in my work is I was um, I acted for a family that were um, of an ambulance worker who died. It was a, an inquest, an investigation into the death of an ambulance worker who died in the first few weeks of the pandemic um, from COVID. And a number of his medical colleagues gave evidence, and just they just spoke about what it was like in those first few weeks in March 2020. Um, in the wards and in the hospitals as the as this sort of you know everybody knew it was coming and then it came and it came very slowly and then it and then it was everywhere all at once and a lot of the medical staff were going down with covid and some were dying i mean they 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 lost two ambulance workers in the first month just one trust um they lost they lost the doctor you know it's 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 it was really really frightening and they were you know they're wearing hazmat suits they couldn't speak to each other and we all, we've all got. I'm, I'm sure everybody um, has has those kind of experiences and memories, um, some more directly than others. And, and during that time, and, and also politically, um, at the same time, Boris Johnson himself was nearly died from COVID. Half the cabinet got COVID at that same time. And so this is excuses a lot in those first few weeks. But I think as things went on, um, and we came into the summer of 2020, and then there. There was a lot longer lead-in, um, and it wasn't our first rodeo in terms of dealing with restrictions. I think as things went on, it became less and less justifiable um, that, first of all, the the laws themselves just received... I mean, not a single law was amended by a single word because they couldn't be amended. It was all in the hands of, I say the government, but I think it really was just four, four members of the government on the, on the COVID committee, the... Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Matt Hancock, and Michael Gove, who were the sort of four, the, the nerve centre, as I understand it, you may correct me, but as, as I understand it, were the decision makers in those major important parts of the pandemic, probably along with Dominic Cummings until he left. And I, I think that the, 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 the advantage of that is that they, they could effectively make quick decisions, although whether they did make quick decisions that I, I don't know. But the disadvantage of that is that, that there was no sort of formal way of challenging the reasoning of what was going on. And these these were such difficult decisions. I just don't see how 
we as the public benefited. And I don't see how the government benefited from keeping these decisions in such a narrow and uh, in such a small group and in such a for such a long time for over two years. That that's my criticism. And, and it didn't it didn't happen like that in, in every you know everywhere around the world. I mean, just look at look at Scotland. You know, close to home, in Scotland there was a much more collaborative approach, and they involved the Scottish Parliament in a much you know it, it, much more than than we did in Westminster. I, it, even even you know just effectively the same. They were dealing with the same crisis as we were at the same time. I don't think there was much water between what was going on in Scotland and what was going on in England through the pandemic. So I, I think that critique, I think, is. Not the only critique, and it may not be the the you know when the COVID inquiry reports, maybe they'll say that was all very important. That was important, but what else, what was much more important was the decisions they were making. Some of them were right, some of them were wrong. But I think from a democratic perspective, that is, I think, one of the reasons why certain problems happened, and um, particularly the um, the sort of endless tinkering with the laws. The fact that the guidance and the laws never matched up, the the difficulties the police had, um, the difficulties the public had with understanding what was going on, and maybe even some of the um, some of the issues around law breaking inside government, I think, were connected in a way to that attitude. Let, let's let's come let's come to. I want to look at three sort of case studies. Um, the first is very interesting in your book. Um, you, there's a sort of interesting defence of Piers Corbyn, uh, the um, Jeremy Corbyn's brother, who was one of the leaders of the, um, you know, anti-lockdown movement, and his fixed penalty notice. He was given a ten thousand pound fine, and you're not sure about that, are you? No, and and, and I wasn't sure at the time. Um, you know. I think it's. I think you made the argument this week in your column about that it's 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 always very easy to defend the people you agree with on a freedom of speech basis, and it's always very tempting to not defend the people you don't agree with. And I certainly didn't agree with Piers Corbyn, and I think he was. You know, I think actually did did some damage. I think it, it, at least his hit the, hit the movement that he was part of did some damage. But um, what happened to Piers Corbyn was that. There was a sort of it, it, a kind of almost like a typical pandemic law story, because um, this happened in lots of other instances, which is that the the government over the I think it was over the summer of 2020, um, and as we got into the autumn, became very actively worried about raves. And it became, you know, because people were having raves, you can understand why there was sort of underground raves were appearing again, because there weren't any nightclubs and the and young younger people, I guess, were getting quite sick of that. So that these raves started appearing and, and the government said, right, we're going to have, we're going to introduce a new £10,000 fine. And, and I think as usual, that news came not through the government itself, but it came through a telegraph leak. So the, the telegraph sort of, it was, it was uh, trailed in the telegraph. And they said, we're going to have a £10,000 fine for, for raves. Okay, fine. The law appeared out of the blue, you know, with a little bit of, well, that's what's going to happen, um, leaks to the newspapers. But the law... Um, it wasn't just about raves. When it appeared, it was also there would be a ten thousand fine for anyone who was holding or involved in the holding a gathering of over thirty people, which is a huge amount wider than just raves. It could involve. I said as soon as I read the law, I tweeted, "This could be a you know a child's birthday party could easily be caught by this." And in fact, a lot, what ended up happening was a lot of student parties 
got caught and I acted for quite a few students who were, you know, ha having, who were caught by the police having and given ten these life changing for many 10,000 pound fixed penalty notices. You couldn't appeal these fixed penalty notices and you couldn't pay them in installments. You just, you had to pay within 28 days or you get prosecuted. But Piers Corbyn, the day after that law came into force, was given a fixed penalty notice of £10,000, possibly the first one, for organising or being involved in the organising of a anti-lockdown rally in central London. And I think that's, um, I think that's really, you know, bordering on the, um, uh, what's the right word? It, 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 unfair doesn't quite cover it. It's arbitrary. You know, you 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 bring in a law by a statutory instrument that hasn't been that is complete, quite re, almost completely different to the law you said you were going to bring in. Um, it arrives one day, and the next day, people are given ten thousand pound fixed penalty notices. Um, and 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 in a way, it's sort of unsurprising that it's Piers Corbyn because maybe he was he was sort of made an example of. Um, and I'm I am uncomfortable with that. I think that there's something called dog law, which I which I talk about a bit, which is one of Jeremy Bentham's phrases he, he said the, the way that is he was crit criticizing the common law he said the way that judges make the common law is the way a man makes law makes the rules for his dog um the dog does something wrong and then and then you then you hit him for it and you say well, i'm punishing you for the thing you just did wrong but the dog has no way of knowing the thing is wrong before you before he gets hit um, and a dog law is the is the idea that sometimes you have laws that people don't know about and they can't reasonably find out about um, and in fact, this happened a lot during the Second World War as well. Yes, yeah, I mean, do you think it's fair? Do you think it's fair? Do you think it's fair to say Jeremy that Piers Corbyn didn't know that it was illegal to organise a demonstration against COVID with a large number of people at it? Well, I think I think at the time it was it was actually legal if you complied with social distancing requirements to um, to have a demonstration. But the, the one of the, the sort of ironies of the anti-lockdown movement is, by definition, they re, they would refuse to comply with social distancing requirements because I think a lot of them thought they were, COVID was a load of old nonsense. Um, I, I think that's actually a fair. Um, I think that that restriction was a fair restriction, and I think a reasonable restriction, and I think it's the restriction that should have been in place throughout the pandemic for pro, outdoor protest. You know, for example, uh, I, I think in. In Israel, they had a um, from the beginning of the pandemic, they drew chalk lines in the um, on, on Rabin Square where the big protests are in Tel Aviv, so that people would have to stand in the chalk lines if they wanted to protest. They would come, they would stand in the chalk lines as long as they stood in the middle of the chalk lines, they would be able to protest. And I think they rightly understood that if you you can't at the same time as imposing unbelievable restrictions on people, also tell them that they can't protest those restrictions but there are ways of doing it um there are ways of making it safer but I, I think i think it is unfair um i don't think it would be unfair to, to he was charged i don't think it's unfair to charge him with an offense because he would have known and, and reasonably been able to find out what the law was but i do think it was unfair to give him a ten thousand pound fixed penalty notice when the high likelihood is he didn't know and these the way the laws were being brought in is it was all it was very very difficult to understand Maybe I'm too charitable towards him, but it did give me um, pause for thought that that um, fixed penalty notices. Let's deal with the, the, uh, another another example, which is uh, the Scotch egg controversy. Uh, the controversy about the fact that you could eat certain things but not others because you 
were able to have bar snacks but not bar meals. Was this, in your opinion, an example of absurdly ill-defined laws or, as I'm afraid I argued myself, an inevitable consequence of any law? Because there will always be a line between the uh, what is a meal and what is not a meal if you want to ban meals, unless you say all food, um, and then that will get you into some other uh, political row. So what do you what did you feel about that row? Well, well this was the the substantial meal you couldn't have a, you couldn't serve a substantial yeah. meal so the question was is a scotch egg a substantial meal there was an interesting article around that time i remember in the new yorker about the restrictions that were in place in in in, in new york they were every every sort of borough had a different set of rules and exactly the same thing was going on there with bars and restaurants they were really struggling to you know exactly you know all of the what was what's enclosed and what's outside what's inside what's a meal what's the drink i i I think i mean we get this in in law all the time obviously i mean one of the 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 less the classic law student questions is is a jaffa cake a cake or a biscuit which was a famous um vat law case um and it ended up being a i always forget i think it's a cake because because a cake as as a cake gets older it gets softer and as a biscuit gets older, it gets harder. That was the that was the ultimate sort of so- Solomonic, if that's the right right word, um, outcome the court the court went for. But the, the, I think the problem with the COVID restrictions and what we saw was that at the beginning they were eleven pages long, eleven pages of law. That was to that, that was the first lockdown was restrict gathering restrictions, business closures, and uh, lockdown. It was all in eleven pages. By the time you're talking about, which I think was in the three tiers, you, there was over 120 pages of law because they just massively expanded it. All these exceptions were added, sort of exception after exception, and um, they became, you know, the, the, they became very micromanagey. And I and I totally understood why they became micromanagey because the government wanted to try and incorporate people's concerns. So you know, people said, "Well, I, I need." To, I need childcare. How can I have a, um, I need childcare. So they said, okay, fine. We'll allow you to leave the house for childcare groups. Okay. But I don't get my childcare from childcare groups. I can't afford a childcare group. I get it from, um, my, from grandparents. Okay, fine. We'll have childcare bubbles. Um, and then, you know, well, can the childcare bubble go to the childcare group? You know, it's this sort of, it's this endless inevitable expansion, but, but I think that, you know, that is a, plus on the sort of Lord Sumption argument type side of the thing, which is that there is no point, um, I think Lord Sumption would say, trying to restrict people's everyday lives in a way which is so, it's so restrictive, it becomes impossible to understand or enforce, because you're basically telling people every element of their lives you're controlling. And I think you, you, you see that in states where where the law, where, you know, particularly non-democratic states, I think, have have laws that are like that. Um, you see it in immigration law, actually, in, in this country, and in social security law, where they've tried to, you know, endlessly add controls to people's lives. But it's not very, um, it, it, it's not very effective. And, the, and not only that, it's very, very hard to do at speed. <laughs> you can't do, it's all very well, you know, if you've got six months to come up with the right solution to the substantial meal problem then great but if you've got six days it's impossible it's just impossible 
So let, let's uh, then do deal with the, the third and final example. I got some other questions, but the third and final example, which was the Boris Johnson's parties. Do you think that the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, was correctly fined? And what was your reflection upon the decisions made about Downing Street's compliance with the law? Yeah, I think I think from what I understand, I think Rishi Sunak was definitely correctly um, given a fixed penalty notice. I think, I mean, it's it's kind of an extraordinary addendum to what was going on um, through those through those two years that the, 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 there was this sort of these regular parties in Downey Street. It wasn't just you know here and there. It was over all three lockdowns. It was a cult. It was obviously a culture within Downing Street. It was a just a way of operating. And it seemed to involve lots of people who you wouldn't normally expect to be doing those sorts of things, like the civil servants who were writing the rules. Um, like Boris Johnson, you know, I, I don't think is a very rule, rule respecting person. I mean, that's just his sort of, he's a bit of a maverick. That's his approach to life, I guess. So you would kind of expect him to be at a lockdown party. But there are lots of people who weren't. And, and I think it's really interesting to, to think why that happened and what was going on. The best I could figure out was that I think there was an element of thinking that they were working very, very hard. They were effectively in a unique position because they were having to be in the office. They were having to make these extremely difficult decisions, which I'm sure caused them a lot of sleepless nights um, and, you know, and, 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 and horror in a way that didn't want to be making these decisions. And I think they just thought they were kind of outside of the usual rules but why that led to them deciding to have, you know, alcohol fueled pretty wild parties, I, I just, I'll never really understand. I think Rishi, I mean, look, Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson attended a, a pre-arranged birthday gathering for the Prime Minister. It was a very good example. Let's let's leave Boris Johnson to one side, but but actually he, Rishi Sunak, didn't know he was going to that. He thought he was going to a meeting and he turned up to it and somebody else had organised something where they were serving a drink and he was standing there so it's a, it's what is yeah. your view about how how widespread was that because from a from a natural justice point of view it was completely unjust but from a legal point of view it probably wasn't and is that is that your is that your view yeah i i think i think this is the way the police will have looked at it they would have said well what would what would have happened if we'd walked in on this gathering in another workplace it wasn't downing street and there were lots of people just hanging around drinking beer, eating sandwiches, and it would prearrange gathering for a birthday. They would have given out fixed penalty notices. It would have been straightforward for them. And if someone had said, well, look, I didn't come to this meeting deliberately. I just turned up, but I decided to join in and have a beer. Um, or would, No, sorry, Richard Sunak wouldn't have had a beer, I, I, I guess. They would have said, well, well, why? You know, they would have looked at the law and the law said it's against, it's a criminal offence to participate in an unlawful gathering. Um, so if once you participate, whether you originally intended to participate or not, whether you were invited or not, it, it doesn't make any difference. And I think they treated that gathering like they would treat any other gathering. But then they probably would have added on the layer of, well, from a natural justice perspective, you were not any old any old schlubs who were <laughs> just turned up in the office not knowing what the law was. You were the people making the laws. So how you could say, oh, I didn't really know no, what was no. going on. I didn't really understand. I, th I think they probably would have looked at it like that. Uh, well, we can differ about the particular details of it, but the broad, the broad thrust of it, I agree with. Let's uh, let's 
move on to something which then will lead me to a final bit about sort of protest before we take more general questions. Lots of these laws required the police to make judgments. I mean, I'm watching the, the current just um, the just stop oil uh, protesters. And one of the judgments the police are trying to make the whole time is, uh, is this an unreasonable piece of behavior? Uh, you know, and, that, and, that, and then the way that they're making that judgment is how disruptive is it? based on Supreme Court judgments and that sort of thing. Um, do you trust, by and large, the police to make these judgments, the police forces we have? Do we have to do something about the nature of the police in order to be more trustworthy? Do we have to draw the laws more tightly so that they don't have so much freedom to make judgments? Um, I, I'm going to say something that won't probably won't um, enamour me with some of my colleagues, but I think the police d did an okay job during the pandemic. I think they had a really difficult job. And I think that the most important thing that happened during the whole pandemic with policing was that at the very, very beginning, in the first week, the National College of um, Policing and the, and the other police sort of associations released some guidance called the Four E's Guidance, which said... Before you enforce, I always forget what the fourth E is, but it's engage and explain before you enforce. That's the approach we're going to take. You don't enforce first because you're, you're, in, you're enforcing public health laws. The point is not to scare people or upset people. It's to make, it's to make them safe from COVID. So explaining and, and, and engaging is the way to deal with it and only move on to enforcement if that fails. And I think that saved the public from a lot of injustices and it saved the police from a real being in a real pickle and um, with how they were enforcing it because if you look at other countries like in um in france i think there was a million fines given out in the first month of the pandemic and um, we had over, just over a hundred thousand through the whole the whole pandemic um and, and you had similar sort of figures in france and in spain it was a lot more enforcement than in the uk but obviously there was also the stories that we all saw of some of the police um overstretch over over, over um egging the pudding with, with, you know, drones, catching dog walkers, set roadblocks, um, stopping people buying Easter eggs, that sort of thing. I think in a way that, that those, those sort of public scandals also help the police and help the public because it helped the police understand where the line was because it wasn't obvious to them where the line was. Um, and I asked, I asked police to get in touch with me to tell me what the, um, how they were feeling. Um, and I, I opened up my Twitter messages and a lot of police contact, contacted me and said, you know, we, we're really struggling. Um, we find it really difficult. We're worried. We're scared. You know, we're members of the public. We get ill too. We're embarrassed to see how some police are behaving. Um, we're worried that the bond of trust between the public and the police is fraying. Um, that, you know, they didn't want to be doing th this task. Um, and I think the, the reclaim these streets, um, it, the Sarah Everard vigil, and I, I acted for the for the people who organised that. I think that was a that was a dark and a low point for for the police. It's probably a, a low point for the police, you know, in in the past few years, not just the COVID pandemic. And I think, in a way, the government was as much to blame for what happened there as the police were, um, for reasons I can I can explain. But we are we're slightly running out of time. Well, before we let me just let's just deal with one question, which probably does divide. I, I'm very sympathetic to your whole approach and almost everything you've said. I've agreed with. Maybe we've got one or two little disagreements, but the um, but where we are, I think we do. This, I'm probably more uh, 
small C conservative or maybe big C conservative on the issue of protest law. Uh, while I was, while I'm very keen that we roll back as, and I, you know, I want to know what your reflections are on that COVID laws. I think that there is a there is a reasonable balance to be struck between people's right to express their opinion on something they think they may believe, but other people may think is wrong, um, and they can't do that by gluing themselves to the to the road. And obviously, this does relate to this balance between the public's view and uh, people's individual liberty. Um, I'm generally libertarian, but I don't think that any people can be allowed to engage. And funnily enough, my my attitude to the Sarah Everard um, demonstration was that I thought the police were unbelievably politically inept in deciding they were going to make a sort of big example out of a group of people demonstrating against a policeman killing somebody, right? So that was obviously completely tone deaf. Uh, I think they've gone completely bonkers. But there was a solution for the demonstrators, which is when they were asked to move on, they could have done so. Um, and the police do have a right to kind of insist that people do so when they're asked, providing that they're within their legal rights to do it. Um, and I think that they're, they ought to have a reasonable range of legal rights to deal with demonstrations. Demonstrations are vital, but they're not the only form of um, civil expression. And actually not having somebody bang a bongo underneath your window all night is also, you know, a, a, a civil liberty. So let me just start with Sarah Everard. I think I think that the the mistake the police made before the enforcement stage was that they didn't allow the the responsible version of the protest to go ahead. That was what the High Court found, that there was a version of the protest of the, of the vigil um which was being organized by the by sort of local councillors um that would have allowed for social distancing that sort of thing and i think that the, what ended up happening um wasn't inevitable because the police didn't need to deal with it in the way they dealt with but it was it wasn't an easy situation um but it was sort of of their own making but i, I think in terms of the right to protest I agree. I don't think people should have any right to glue themselves to the road, um, for, you know, and, and stop the traffic um, if it's going to, you know, go on for any length of time. Although, if if they have a right to it, it's a qualified right, um, and we have to balance the rights of people to get down the road. I think, on the other hand, if if you just focus on the deliberately deliber deliberately disruptive protests, so what what's going on at the moment? I think with Insulate Britain and and and, and well, insulate Britain, particularly in stop oil, is there certain certain of their actions? They, they're, they're said to be direct action, but I don't think they are direct action because they're not directed at the organisations or the individuals who can change the things they want to change. They're directed at the public. Um, and I think that's the way the courts have approached, say, insulate Britain. That's why the courts have been really sort of strict with insulate Britain, because they're saying your right to protest, we totally respect but the further away your protest is from the topic of your protest, the less, um, the less there's a nexus between those two things, the less you're, you, you have a right to have that protest because why should, why should you be targeting random people? Um, it, you know, for, for insulate, to, to insulate Britain, they have nothing to do with it. So I think, I think that we, we are probably not far away from each other on that. But I think what the problem yeah. that I see is that that public anger and the government anger at those indirect protests are are being used to justify very much larger restrictions on a much more wide-ranging restrictions on direct 
action protests and also just general procession and assembly type protests that we see that are very disruptive. But, you know, they're disruptive in the same way that a football match is disruptive or uh, a rally is a, a sort of, you know, a royal wedding is disruptive. They are part and parcel of the way we, the way society works, the way democratic society works. And and so, you know, the new laws, um, I know you've, you've written about this this week, the the new laws that are being proposed, for example, protest banning orders, which will allow for the first time for there to be a kind of civil order made against protesters who have been um, uh, caught out by the law one or two times, that the courts will be able to stop them going into city centres or associating with people or, or, or make them wear tags, those sorts of things. And that is, those are methods that we've used in the past to handle things like knife crime and organized violence that we're importing across to, to civil disobedience. And I think that is, it, those sorts of tactics are pretty dangerous and don't just relate, they're not really about insulate Britain. They're much more about Extinction Rebellion and large scale social movements, which I think are a net good rather than a net bad. Oh, okay. That's a crucial uh, addition uh, because what happens if they um, um, apply to, you know, abortion uh, campaigners or racial segregationists? It can't be the content of the uh, demonstration, surely, that uh, is the deciding feature. I mean, I, I'm interested that you think they're a net, net good. I happen to think a lot of their things, the things that they say are asinine, but that, that, that shouldn't, that shouldn't, I mean, I'm obviously, I believe in climate science, obviously, but I, I just think their particular proposals are asinine. So, you know, but we can't make a judgment on the basis of I think that and you think that. And therefore, I mean, the, the law has to be kind of equal between all sorts of different demonstrations. It doesn't matter that you, in other words, it doesn't matter. Yes, yeah, so, sorry. Okay. So I, I, no, you're absolutely right. You like to pull me up on that. And that's the point you make in the article. But I think that overall, um, what, you know, big social movements, if, if there is, um, if there is a cause, which is enough of a concern for lots and lots of people in society, generally we, we act benignly towards them because we allow for those people to be out there on the streets trying to persuade other people to, um, towards their point of view. And we accept that if there's that enough, if there's enough people who are going to, protest those things and do it peacefully, um, then it's it's a net good for society to allow that to happen, even if it's a bit disruptive. So I think I, I, I would much prefer for the police to stay well out of, or to be, to be told to stay well out of um, those sorts of issues, unless there's a public safety point. Um, and that's where, that's where I think the law has been in the past, although we've actually got pretty, uh, we've already got pretty strict anti-protest laws if the police want to use them. But I think we're just getting to a point where the police are being invited into lots and lots of situations where they really should not be there. And it will only end up harming the relationship the police have with, with the rest of society rather than helping manage public safety or stopping people gluing themselves to the road, which I think people will keep doing. It's already illegal to do that. And I think they will keep doing it. Okay, well, look, I, I, the, the truth is I could go on talking to you all day and all night because uh, I find you a completely compelling and fascinating person to talk to, but it's not fair. So, Vaz, you have to come in now and ask some, uh, some audience questions, which otherwise I'll use up all the time asking my own. Would you like to come in now and do that? Thank you, Adam. What you've said tonight is so vital. Another pandemic could easily happen again, and it could be worse. So what can we do now to ensure that we get the state of emergency right next time and stop government overreach. I don't 
pretend to have all the answers. And I think some of the issues which arose um, were in a way inevitable. Um, but I think there are some quite, some quite straightforward fixes and some more complicated fixes. The, the straightforward one, I think, is making sure that our public health laws in, involve Parliament more. You know, and 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 it's it's interesting that the Civil Contingencies Act, which is where we usually go for emergency powers, it, rather than twenty eight days, makes sure that Parliament is involved within seven days, and allows Parliament to amend regulations. And um, why that wasn't included in the Public Health Act, um, I don't really know. I don't think the Public Health Act got much attention, actually, in 2008 when it was changed to bring in all the powers that were used during the pandemic. Um, so I think th those are pretty simple fixes, and I imagine that's what the COVID inquiry will recommend as well. I, I think more complicated, I, I, I would really like us to work towards some sort of codification of our constitution. And I say this in the context of the pandemic because I think that one of the things that codified constitutions do is they define states of emergency and they carefully limit emergency powers. And I think one of the one of the disadvantages of our unwritten constitution, I know there are, there are advantages and there would be disadvantages of having codified constitution, um, and that's a bigger debate for another time. But I think one of the advantages is you could allow for emergency powers to be much more carefully controlled and also involve the courts um, in a more um, substantive way. And I think one of the things we haven't discussed is that I think the courts effectively stayed out of the picture. And I think in a way um, that was problematic because the courts are another route to scrutiny and, you know, some sort of uh, strict stricture over how laws are being made. And, and because Parliament wasn't doing it, wasn't playing its usual role, the courts said, well, you know, this is all for Parliament. And then Parliament wasn't involved either. So in the end, it was just four guys in a room who were making the decisions, which I think is problematic for the reasons I've already discussed. Thank you. Uh, related question. So you mentioned Scotland having a more legitimate and democratic approach. Are there any other countries whose response to the pandemic you admired, Sweden perhaps, and any others who failed with even more ridiculous and farcical legislation? The answer is, I'm, I'm hoping if there's a second edition of the book, I'm going to do that work. And I haven't done the work yet. And I haven't, you know, properly looked at it. Um, not because I'm not interested, but just because it's it, to make a valid comparison, to make a sort of viable comparison is not straightforward. Um, every, to the, even just on, on the idea of lockdowns, the lockdowns in China were so different to the lockdowns in the United Kingdom that in a way it's, they're not even, they're barely comparable. You know, you had drones enforcing lockdowns. You had people being shipped off who were people with, um, symptoms of COVID being shipped off to internment centers. Um, it really was a very, very different picture. So just as an example, just that as an example, um, I think you have to be quite careful about how comparisons, but, um, I want to do that work. Um, I just haven't done it yet. Thank you. So another question, is it actually possible? to oppose government regulation if the government uses a national emergency as justification? I mean, the only the only thing that could have derailed any of these regulations was if Parliament voted them down, either the, either the Commons or the Lords. And the reality was that that was it just it wasn't even close to happening. I think that the most the most opposition came in the sort of middle middle period of the period that I look at. So during the build up to the second lockdown um, in the autumn of 2020 and the third lockdown when some of the um, 
uh, particularly conservative MPs, the um, the COVID recovery group, I think it was called, um, got it, it started to get angsty about not being involved in the lawmaking. But the, the, there was it, it was never even close that a, sing, a regulation would not be voted, uh, would not be uh, get a majority, and and if it got its majority, that was it. You know, there was no way of amending. There was no way of of, of doing anything else. The, the only other thing that could have happened. The courts could strike down regulate. The courts can strike down regulations because they're secondary legislation. So if the courts had decided that any single regulation was contrary to the Human Rights Act, they would have been able to do that. But in the end, they um, the, the, well, for, in the end, towards the beginning, they said, "Well, this is this isn't a matter for us. We're not going to entertain these kinds of claims because it's a, it's for government to decide these complex issues of social policy, which." Um, People will think that's either that that's right or it's wrong, but I think it did lose an opportunity, um, lose an, lost an opportunity to properly get to grip with these laws. Thank you. What can the government do to make amends to the people who had to follow the confusing and arbitrary laws, which government members themselves did not follow? Well, I think one thing that I'd suggest should happen is that, that all of the prosecutions should be reviewed. Um, and and, pro- and uh, pro- at least the higher fixed penalty notices, you know, the ones that were in the thousands of pounds, because I think a lot of the time the police got it. Well, and I know a lot of the time the police got it wrong because they did the prosecuting themselves. And when the CPS reviewed at various points prosecutions under the COVID regulations, they found that about a third of them were wrongly prosecuted, which if you assume the same for fixed penalty notices, um, which actually have a much lower test for the police to be able to give them out. You can probably think that there would have been tens of thousands that were wrongly given out, which would include a ma- many um, sort of in the thousands of pounds. So I do think that some, of, I think, I do think those should be reviewed. Um, there were also um, amazingly, um, and, and I still can't believe this, that the uh, thousands of the COVID prosecutions were done under the single justice procedure which is usually used for t- sort of TV license type prosecutions, really simple ones. But what that means is the judge decides the case on the papers without any input from the defendant. Um, and it's in a sort of room without the public attending. So I think that was, that's also another reason to try and unpick some of those prosecutions. But I don't think there's any, there might be a moral case for, for doing something different because the politicians didn't follow the, um, the rules, but I don't think there's a legal case. I don't think it makes any difference at all. Do you think that the freedoms taken away from people were particularly difficult for certain social groups, and how can this be made fairer? I mean, for sure, the um, the, the lockdowns were discriminatory, discriminatory, on certainly on racial on on a racial basis. Now, I'm not saying that was done deliberately, but it, it, I look at some of the research in the book, and actually, the research isn't that great. Um, I, I tried really hard to find good quality research into this. It's not the highest quality, but what it effectively said, I think, if I could summarise it, is that lockdowns were more difficult for people in lower socioeconomic groups, and that tended to because of the of racial disparities in terms of socioeconomic um, outcomes um, in the country that they also affected. Um, certain racial groups more and and also because certain racial groups if you remember from the beginning of the pandemic there was a lot of talk about why were southeast asian people um dying more from covid um than non-southeast asian people um in in our in the uk and i think that where that got to 
what where where that ended up in terms of the conclusion was that the it was to do with living conditions that people living in sort of multi generational houses where they couldn't they couldn't socially distance they couldn't it was all very well being locked down but the the lockdown was actually it was actually exposing them to um to uh, other people rather than um pr- protecting them from other people and i think also because they were out and about working as carers and um in the nhs and as um teaching assistants in a way that um other groups weren't as much um and that was part of it so i think there was there was a lot of that and and there was also a very large disparity um in the handing out of fixed penalty notices to young black and asian me- men and i think that tracked pretty much exactly the usual disparity that there is to police um enforcing the criminal law um against certain racial groups and certain um uh, demographics why that is um why it why it tracks the same um my theory is that the police having just been thrown into this basically went and did the things that they were doing anyway which is sort of patrolling the places they patrol which might um be where they find lots of young um young men I, you know, out on the streets. I, I don't know. I think that I think that there's, there's probably a link between those two facts. But again, it's something which has to be looked at in a lot of detail and really understood. Um, and maybe it'll end up, it'll turn out to have been worse or, or better than, um, than than we think at the moment. Last question: What can the government do to regain the public's trust in such crises? I'm not sure there's anything the government can do. I think I think it it, it really let let the side down. Um, I, I'm talking about Boris Johnson's government in particular, through things like the Partygate and, and other issues that arose. I think that they, I think that that probably did some serious damage to public trust of government. Um, and it was a it was an unforced error. Like you, you were going to fight, you were always going to have a tense relationship between those in power and those having to follow the rules during the pandemic because this was a really difficult time for society um, and a really difficult time for, for 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 leaders and for and for, for for the public but i think the absolute tragedy of of the uh, of of the loss of trust arising from the parties and from the other things that happened the coming scandal matt hancock i think we'll probably feel it after the pandemic i don't think you need another pandemic for that to have um, impacted on the way people feel about about those in power. Thank you, Adam. And thank you to you, Daniel Finkelstein, for joining us this evening. This episode starred Adam Wagner and was presented by Daniel Finkelstein. It was produced by Nicole Wong and the series is made by me and Esme Bright. Our editor is John Doughty. We'll be back on Friday. Until then, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>